0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Press. Uh, It's good to see you all. Uh, If you are visiting with us, thanks for worshiping with us. Uh, Please stick around as there's a a time of fellowship after our service, and it's a a great time to, an an opportunity to get to know each other, so uh, hopefully you're able to do that. We're continuing along in our series on the, the latter or towards the end part of the book of Revelation, and the scripture for today comes to us in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. And uh, if you're able, I want to ask you, invite you to please stand for the reading of His word. Uh, We stand for uh, the word of God as an act of worship, a sign of reverence. And I pray that your hearts and your minds could be open here today as you hear the word of God. Revelations 21, uh, starting with verse 1. John the Apostle, he writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. On the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's word. You can take your seats at this time. And as Elder Tom has eloquently just led us in prayer, and now the scripture reading, you get a sense automatically that what this passage is about is giving you a picture of heaven. And we've been saying over and over again that our series in the book of Revelation the return of the king is essentially giving and painting a picture of your destiny for those who are in Jesus. A hope that gives you um, life-sustaining power in the now. And these verses give us a picture of what heaven will be like. And in the context, John writes these verses and he's writing to churches and Christians who are suffering very deep experiences of persecution in some ways they probably will suffer in ways that you and I will never have to suffer in our lives. They're literally going to be burned at the stake, they're going to be uh, pummeled, they're going to be persecuted, Uh, they're going to be murdered, and all kinds of uh, acts of tragedy and atrocities. And so they're going to experience a level of suffering that you and I may not experience here today. And what John wants to do is to say, I'm going to give you a picture of heaven, of your future, but if you really believe in this, it gives you power in the now. That's how the gospel hope works. It's not just something you wait for it to happen, but if you really believe in this vision of your destiny in heaven, a future picture of heaven, it gives you life giving, word driven, spirit empowered hope in the now, in the present. This is your future, but it gives you help today. That's what John's trying to accomplish a real hope, a life giving hope today because of the future that is secured for you in Christ down the road. Heaven is described, if you read in these verses is described more in terms of relationship and not geography. Oftentimes we think, well, heaven will be a place that we go, and certainly that's true. But the dominant way to explain what heaven will be like is not about a place, but really about a person. It's less about where you'll be, and more about who you'll be with. So that's why it describes relationships, describes who God is, it describes who Jesus is and what he's gonna be like, and definitely it's gonna be some sort of spatial reality that you're going to exist in the afterlife, but it cares far more about, about describing heaven and with, and in a way that you'll be with Jesus and who you'll be with more than what this place will be like. And so I pray that for all of us in our own moments of doubt, our suffering, um, our tears, our heartache, that this real picture of heaven can give you a life-giving hope now. And there are, very, there are three basic pictures that these verses give us about the new heaven and new earth. First, we'll see that there's a city. And then secondly, you'll see that there's a bride. And then thirdly, you'll see that there's a blessing. So this picture of heaven, their destiny, for those of us who are in Jesus, there's a city, there's a bride, and then there's a blessing. So let's look at this together. There's a city that gives a picture of what heaven will be like for us and is given against the backdrop of this wonderful image of the new heaven and new earth. Now, many of you have probably gone to the Getty in the museum, and if you've ever been there at night, it's a beautiful sight, isn't it? There's a backdrop of the skyline, there's a crystal clear picture when the skies are clear of the stars, and it's just a wonderful city where Los Angeles is lit up by the city lights, and it's just a wonderful picture. In the same way, that's what John's trying to paint for us, because, you know, we've been saying this every Sunday, Revelation is a picture book, and it's, gonna, it's not a puzzle book. He cares more about symbols and not so much about statistics. And he's taken this picture and he's saying there's a city coming down in verses 1 to 2. And it's against this backdrop that's far better than the nighttime sky that we see in LA. It's not just wonderful stars. It's a new heaven and a new earth and a city coming down to his people. That's why verse 2, in the beginning, it says, John writes, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, it's a picture here of the city, but what I like to call the city is a city of grace. It's a gracious city. And I call it a city of grace because when you read verses 1 to 2, John sees a holy city, but it's coming down. That trajectory is really important. It's a city coming down to his people. So when you think about the afterlife and the end time picture, it's not souls rising up to God. Not souls rising up to a city, it's a city coming down to his people. It's a city that God owns. It comes from him, he created it, it's his presence, he gives it to us. It's a picture that shows us it's not man building our way up to God, but really God out of his grace coming down to us. It's not man through our own strengths and resources in which, through our achievements, we're trying to reach up to God. That's essentially the picture of Genesis 11, if you read that passage, the Tower of Babel. The people wanted to elevate themselves and to be claimed a level of glory that was godlike. So they build this tower through their own achievements and their own power and military resources, this Tower of Babel that they thought would bring them a little bit closer to heaven so they could have people through their strength go up to heaven, and what did God do? He destroyed the tower, he scattered the people, and then he confused their languages because you can't build your way up to God. It's a city of grace that comes down to man. It's a city that comes down to people who are hurting, and who are broken, who are needy, just like you and me. You see, we can't earn this city. There's no fast pass into the city. You're naturalized in the city because God comes down. You don't make it, you don't earn it, you receive it. So you become a citizen of the city because in the gospel of Jesus, you've been naturalized, you've been made a citizen of heaven. And if you didn't know that, it's one of the truths that makes Christianity so unique, so different. Because fundamentally, it's completely different from every other religion out there Mormonism, Buddhism, any philosophy because it's the only religion, Christianity, the only way of life that says God is going to come down to people who don't deserve it. Every other religion says you have to work your way up to God, you have to be good enough, you have to determine how many good works you accomplish, you have to outline this, and if you're good enough, maybe you'll be able to get into the ticket get the ticket into the entrance of the city every other way they say you have to be good enough to move up but this religion this picture of heaven says christianity and the gospel is the only way that the only religion in which god comes down to you now he said this time and time again but if you can picture it or imagine it pictorially there's heaven up here every other religion says if you do good and do this then you could go into heaven so do this, and then you get the blessings in heaven. But what Christianity says is that you have a city in the new heavens and new earth. It's the only city that says you're not good enough, but it's going to come down to you. So if you're good enough, then you receive the blessings. But Christianity says, I'm going to give you the blessings first, change and transform you, and then you start doing good things. So it's the city that comes down. All other religion, man, goes up. Christianity and the gospel says, I'm going to come down. The city is going to come down to you in His presence. And it's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. This city is a fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament because Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And Isaiah is prophesying a time when there will no longer be any suffering, any hurt, no captivity. It will be a perfect restoration in the picture and presence of God. The city of Jerusalem symbolizes all the presence and all the fullness of God's blessings to you and me. The city of God represents the picture of heaven, the very kingdom of God for you. The kingdom of God represented by God's presence and a city to you. See, the kingdom of God is this really big picture and co- sort of concept, but in some sense it's really simple. One commentator by Graeme Goldworthy said this, the kingdom of God is basically God's people in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing. That's what the city represents. All of that. God's people and God's place under God's rule, receiving God's blessing, represented by the city, and guess what? It comes down to you. Man doesn't go up, the city comes down. Vern Poitras talks about the New Jerusalem, and this is what he says. The New Jerusalem represents the perfecting of the community and the consummation of its joy in the presence of God. It is not Babel reaching up to assault heaven in autonomous pride, but the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a gift and the artistic product of God's craft. That's what he says is the new Jerusalem, the city. It's a hope, friends, and a vision that God gives to his suffering people of his church. It's a city that shows the kingdom of God, the presence of God, symbolizes his relationship with you, and he gives that to you now. You'll have it in perfection, but you get a taste of it now. And that's why it tells us for people like you and me who are hurting today, there will be a time when sin and suffering will be done away with, and you'll have a bliss and a holy perfection and harmony in the presence of God because God dwells with you. Verse 3 tells us this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them, and they will be with his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He says, God will dwell with you. That's, that word literally means he's going to be a tent for you. He's going to tabernacle with you. you know, some urban missiologists and some urban planners and urban theorists, they stress this point, and they say, look at the end time and the picture of heaven, that what comes down is a city. That's why in ministries, you have to be city-centric. Transform the city, you'll transform the culture. I think they have a valid point, but I don't agree fully, because even though the Bible ends with the city, we can't forget that it began in a garden. So there's both the countryside but also the city side. The Apostle Paul ministered in city centers, but Jesus ministered in the countryside. So God is not just an urbanite, He's not a suburbanite or a ruralist. God loves everywhere. He loves the farmers and he loves the city slickers. God loves the city and the country because he God is wherever his people are. And he loves his people, and he wants to dwell with them in his blessing. in the new Jerusalem is that vision and that picture of where we're going to be, a perfect kingdom in which he loves us and cleanses us, dwells with us, and covers and showers us with his blessing and his grace. Many people, you probably know this, as COVID begins to loosen up, um, the hospitality industry and vacations and hotels, they go up, Uh, in terms of quantity, they go up in terms of occupancy, so it brings more uh, business into the economy of of our country. But if you've been on vacation, you go to either camping and you stay at a a tent or a lodge or a cabin or you go to a hotel, you know, it's pretty fun. You know, it's an enjoyable experience. But at some point, we all recognize, I'm ready to go home. Because you long for home even though you enjoy the hotel. And the reason is because this. You can stay in a hotel, but you can only dwell at home. You can only tent at home. You can live in a cabin, but you can only dwell at home. There's no place like home. And God is saying, your home ultimately is in the city. God's going to dwell with you. He's not going to just live there or stay there. He's going to dwell in the fullness of his blessings. And you get to experience that. And John is saying, for people who are suffering... In the time of revelation, and you're dying for your faith, realize that this place on this world is a temporary stay because God's going to dwell with you in your home, in the new city, in the new Jerusalem. And that's our vision for heaven today. But secondly, John moves on and says, well, it's not just a city, but you know what? There's also a bride. Now, we saw this imagery in other chapters, but he brings it out a little bit more. The city leads to a bride in verse 2. Let's read that again. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the city of Jerusalem, which is the presence of God, and the satisfaction of all our human desires, is now seen as a bride. Because it's one thing to know that you have access to God as a city, as a culture, as a nation, but it's another thing to know that you have access to God as a spouse. There's no deeper intimacy, no Heartfelt relationship, no emotional connection, no love other than that's as unique and special intimate between as it is with husband and wife. Now think about it in this way, not to make a political statement whatsoever, but Gavin Newsom, you know his political agenda, you know how he handled COVID, you know his affiliations, but you know what? You're not going to know him in the way that his wife knows him. You may know his political platform, but his wife is going to know his favorite foods, his books that he reads, vacation spots, idiosyncrasies, sort of his habits in the morning. So in theory, we can get access to Newsom through his office hours and through his secretaries or through social media. But his wife is going to get access to him in the middle of the night when she needs to be comforted, when she's hurting, when she's crying, when she wants to talk, when she needs a cup of water in the middle of their bedtime. We may be able to interrupt Newsom in his office, but his wife can interrupt him in the middle of his sleep. That's what you call access. The marriage imagery, in other words, friends, intensifies the intimacy and the love and the satisfaction that all our hearts so desperately crave. The vision of what God gives us, that John gives us, is not just the presence of God as a holy city, but the presence of God as a holy husband. An intimate connection your life's longing, your soul that craves to be loved and to be seen and know, you have that fully in your husband, Jesus Christ, because we're the bride. And this picture is meant to encourage the people like you and me who are suffering, who desperately want to be seen and loved, and we have all this hurt, and we have to process these emotions. And it tells that one day we'll have a perfect love and a perfect intimacy, a fulfillment like we've never seen before, As Christian or not, our hearts are built that we crave to be loved. We want something to love us back. Whether you're Christian or not, it's just not a Christian reality, it's a human reality. The deepest desires of the human heart is to simply be loved. We all want to be accepted and to be known and to be seen and cared for. That's why Augustine, one of my favorite quotes I've quoted throughout the years, he says, our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. Or Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician-philosopher, says in the heart of man is a God-shaped void that only God can fill. That's how you're created. Christian or not Christian, that's how your heart is. Or maybe the social commentary of Charlie Brown and Charles Schultz. Did you know Charlie Brown, No, in one comic strip, is basically, which is actually very coincidental, because it's rolling up tomorrow on Valentine, but there's a comic strip of Charlie Brown, and he he just says this at one point, uh, one picture frame of the cartoon strip, I just want a valentine. I just want a valentine. So I sort of researched Charlie Brown, and It's like, what is the sociological significance of Charlie Brown? He's the number one saddest cartoon character, is what one article said. He's born without good looks, without any talents. He's constantly ignored. He's always put down. He dreamed of being a great baseball player, but never was. He always tried to kick the football, but never did. The other character, Lucy, said to him, I'm not sure what happiness means, but I look in your eyes, and I know that it isn't there. Charlie Brown was a commentary on the human condition, to say that we all have this innate desire to belong, the Peanuts gang, and that we want to be loved, we want joy and satisfaction. That's a human thing. It's not a Charlie Brown thing. It's not an Augustine thing. It's a human thing. It's not just a Christian thing, but Christianity has the only truth that will answer this. Money's not going to answer that. Power's not going to answer this. You want purpose in life. It's not going to be success and power that's going to fulfill this. It's going to be Jesus Christ as your husband. On some level, we get that experience in friendships and human relationships. Now, there's a real deep love that we have with one another, but it all pales in comparison to the very love of Jesus Christ for you and me. Only Jesus can give that to you. Every other love that we have in this world is a shadow of the love that God gives us to us in his Son. So if you've ever been to a wedding, or whether you have or you haven't, any wedding, the greatest wedding that you've seen or you've been to, man, you ain't seen nothing yet. There is a wedding that's going to happen, a wedding of the Lamb, and we're headed for the wedding of the century, the millennium, the wedding of eternity, and we're not just going to watch the bride walk in down that aisle, we're going to be that bride. We're going to participate in this wedding. We're not going to be watching, but we're going to be walking. We'll enter into salvation, into righteousness. we we'll enter into the throne room and the kingdom of God on this wedding march. It won't just be wedding music that's going to be playing. It's going to be the heavenly, angelic music of the angels praising God on his throne as we are united in perfection to our husband Jesus Christ forever. And finally, all the things that we crave so deeply in this world in terms of wanting to be known and seen finds its climactic fulfillment in the picture of Jesus Christ given to us in the new heaven and new earth because the city comes down and we're prepared as the bride. That's your destiny. That's what you have. And to cap it all off, John writes that it's not just a city, it's not just a bride, but it comes with immense blessing. That's our third point. Read only verses 3 to 4 this blessing. It says there in verses 3 to 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God Will be with them as their God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is a picture of consummate climactic blessing for his people. It's interesting. In verses one to two, John appeals to the sense of sight. I saw the new heaven and new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. But in verse 3, he transitions, and now he appeals to the sense of hearing. I heard a voice saying. God's voice is basically explaining what the images of the city and the marriage are. This interpretation of God is basically saying there will be consummate blessing, eternal, perfect blessing for the saints. Because in verse 3, it says, He will dwell with them, and they will be with people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Because remember when I said in the beginning of the message, Heaven is described in the Bible much more about relationship than it is about geography. I will dwell with them. He will be his people, and God himself will be their God. We're going to be his bride. He says later in the latter parts of uh, the passage we read, he says, God will be your father and he'll be your son. It's all about the relationship because the relationship that you have with God is what's going to be the source of all the blessings that you have. Now, years ago, when I was in high school, I was living in Florida, and I remember that I went to McDonald's and I went through the drive-thru and I picked up uh, probably the Big Mac meal, that's what I usually get. But I remember seeing on the side, there was a couple. And the, the wife looked, I mean, they looked just like a tired couple. They seemed, they were working hard, They looked tired, it looked like husband and wife was the assumption, and they're meeting for lunch, and they're eating on the backside of the pickup truck. She looked like she was on her break as a waitress. He looked like he was a contract worker. And they were eating McDonald's together, all dirty, all messed up in dirty clothes, on the back of a dirty pickup truck. But you know what? When I saw that, even when I was a junior in high school, I could tell they loved each other. The way that they would look at each other, the way that they would laugh with each other the way that I would imagine the conversation was going. It was a picture of an intimacy and a relationship that transcended their circumstances because true happiness, true blessing is not gonna be about your environment nearly as much as it's gonna be about your relationship. And so when people ask me about what is heaven gonna be like? Is my dog gonna be up there? Is basketball gonna be up there? Is there gonna be movie theaters? I don't really know. But I know that you won't be disappointed Because the most important truth and reality about heaven that gives you life-giving sustenance to suffer today is to know that you have a perfected relationship in Jesus Christ with God who is your father, who is your city, who is your bridegroom, and he loves you deeply, and you're going to dwell with him forever and ever. In one sense, when you trace the Bible, the greatest blessing that the Bible is trying to give you in the gospel is presence, presence. Adam and Eve had presence in the garden, and when they sinned, they got kicked out of the presence of God. The whole point of the Bible, from one perspective, is how can it get access back into the presence of, the, of God and his throne? Genesis, they got kicked out. Then you go through the patriarchs. Then you go through the Israelites' and historical books, and the whole point is trying to trace the people, always trying to find their way back into the temple and the tabernacle and the tent to get into the presence of God. God dwelt with his people in the Garden of Eden. Then he dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. And then even in the Nehemiah, the series before this, God dwelt with his people in the temple. But God climatically and finally dwelt with his people in his son Jesus Christ because John chapter 1 says when Jesus came in the incarnation, he tabernacled among his people. And then in Acts, we see that Jesus died and he rose again, gave his Holy Spirit to the church so that now God dwells within us. It's all about dwelling with God in a relationship. The vision of a city, the bride, that we see here, the consummation of all of this, he will be our father, he will be our husband, the giver and supplier of all our needs, the complete fullness and generosity of all the blessings and promise, the consummation of all this is in Jesus Christ. And we get a picture, finally, that we're forever in the presence of God, in the new garden, the new city, the new Jerusalem. The blessings in the relationship, that will mean everything for our lives. That will give you true happiness and joy. Everything will be new. That's why it's a new heaven and new earth. You know, it doesn't take much for me to explain to you that we live in a culture that loves the new. We have short attention spans. There's new technology coming up. We want new clothes, new TV shows. We're a culture that loves the brand new. There is a difference between the newness that we think about in our lives and the newness that the Bible's talking about in Revelation 20. John cares about something new because he keeps telling us there's something new about to happen. The word new there is listed four times, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 5. I get this insight from one of the best commentators on the book of Revelation. His name is G.K. Beale, and he talks about what is this new heaven and new earth, the new city, the new Jerusalem. Verse 5, even Jesus says... Right now, I'm making everything new. It's not the newness that we understand in terms of quantity or duration of time. When we think about new, we're thinking we want a new car, a new sweatshirt, new shoes, a new iPhone, so it's talking, we think that newness means a rebirth, something that's recently manufactured, created, duration of time. That's not what the new is talking about in 21. It's not talking about something that just was created, manufactured, or birthed. Not something that was new in time, John is talking about something that's new in quality. The new heavens and new earth doesn't mean the earth and heaven that we have now is going to be judged away. It's going to be transformed into something new, something better. It's qualitatively new. You know, in the same way that when you look at Jesus, he had a human body. And then when he was resurrected, he had the same body, but as the first fruits in his resurrection, Jesus' body was entirely new, but it was still the same body. So it's not newness in time, newness in quality. The earth and the new heavens is not going to be something that's created anew that comes down. Rather, it's going to be something that's redeemed and transformed and renovated. Even our bodies here today, believe it or not, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're going to have the same body in the resurrection when you're in this city dwelling with God. But you know what? It's going to be the same body, but entirely new qualitatively. So if you feel like your back is always hurting if you feel like you have a bad shoulder that gets dislocated, if you feel like you're unhealthy and lethargic, if you feel like you're overweight, the good news is all of that will be done away with because you'll have a body that's going to be touched by the glorious new quality of Jesus' shining bright glory for you. Your body will be transformed from the seed to the flower. It's the same body, but it's going to be qualitatively new. It's about the newness That's something better that you have yet to experience but only get a taste until Jesus Christ comes back. See, this is what's so profound. As I said in the beginning, this newness, this picture of all the blessings, is not just for the future, because in verse 5 it says, I'm making things new. That's present tense. It's not saying, oh, this new thing, just wait for it and it'll come. That is true, but it says, that new heaven and reality and new city I'm making things new now. Jesus is changing and transforming you. He's giving you a taste. You're thinking, well, what what kind of newness is this going to be? What kind of qualitative life is this going to be? Well, it's not going to be a new body yet because our bodies are actually decaying. It's not going to be a new mind yet because we start to lose our memory as we get older. But it's going to be a new life. I'm making things new, it's going to be a new worldview new priorities, a new joy, a new perspective, a new transformation of relationships. It's going to be a new perspective on your money, a new philosophy and approach to your family and to your kids. It's going to be a life transformed by the very gospel, and that basically means you're changing day by day into the image of Jesus because Jesus says, I'm making things new. This qualitatively new thing. You get a taste of it now. I'm giving it to you. Sure, it's slow, and it's hard, and it's difficult, but I'm giving it to you right now. That's why... When Jesus makes things new, it helps us to hold on to the promises of verse 4. That's why we have this hope in which he says, I'm making things new, and I'm going to wipe every tear away. I remember when I was little, oftentimes, like, getting fight with my brother, and I'll have, like, a new Hot Wheels car that was my thing back in the day, and later on it became Transformers. And every time my brother and I would fight and you know, a toy would break, I'd be crying, and what would the parents do? Well, sometimes they just get mad at both of us and send us to the room, but sometimes my parents be like, William, it's okay. I'm going to buy you a new toy. I'll buy you a better one. And on some level, that's what Jesus is saying. There's something new coming, and I'm going to wipe away your tears. Years ago, when I was in a community group, I visited one in Irvine, and we were at this park, and I was on um, uh, I was, on, I was on the playground by myself. My kids weren't there. I was on the playground by myself. And I'm swinging on the bars. And I see my uh, Riley, she was maybe like five years old. She's running in the background. And she was on flip-flops and she fell. And her face just smashed into the concrete. And I was looking at this as I was swinging. I was like, oh my gosh. So I ran over there and her face was all scraped up. And she was crying. And you know, as a dad, if you've seen this, obviously it's not life or death. But you still feel so bad and you want to fix her and you want to make your child feel better, so you wipe away her tears. It's like, Riley, it's okay, Daddy's here. Things will be okay. And we'll put medicine on this. We'll fix it up. That is a picture of your life now. I'm confident that many of us have shed many tears in the past year or so. Tears of heartache, tears of pain, tears of frustration. Sometimes it does feel hopeless. But John is trying to paint a picture to saying things will be new. Jesus is making things new. And to realize that God sees every tear that you shed and he's wiping it away. He's going to wipe it away. No more tears of sorrow. No more tears of pain. No more tears of heartache. He's going to wipe away every tear. And he's saying, it's okay. What happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam's sin when you got kicked out? That's all done for now. You're back at home. I'm dwelling with you, and it's okay. No more pain and no more sorrow. That's why it says in verse 1, the sea was no more. That's the picture of the promise that there will be no more evil or injustice. When it says the sea is no more, it's not saying there's no beaches in heaven. You can't read it literally, no swimming pools. Water represented to the people of Revelation, especially in the Old Testament as well, the sea in biblical times represented chaos, evil, disorder. That's why the story of Noah and Noah's Ark, when God flooded the world, that water was representing man's rebellion and it was God's punishment and it was a world of disorder. And God and Jesus Christ put everything back into order. That's why he says, when I put everything back into order with peace and love and prosperity, the sea is never going to be a threat. It will be no more. The seas come upon the people in the book of Revelation. They got persecuted. They got hurt. The sin, evil, injustice, and fallenness of the world is something that Revelations and the readers of the letter experience. But you know what? You also experience your seas here today. You have the sea of stress, the sea of anxiety. You experience the chaos in the waters of depression, confusion, sickness, loneliness, physical pain, the suffering and the pain that you go through now is symbolized in the metaphorical expression of the biblical realities of the water. Every one of you are in your own version of the chaos of water. And Jesus is telling you, I know that you're going through rough waters right now in your life, but rest assured, one day, the sea will be no more. The captain of your life, the captain of the ship, of your salvation, Jesus Christ is going to make the sea calm, make the waters calm, make the waves calm, and the sea will be no more. That's why later on we get to the passage. It says actually a greater picture of the city. There's going to be a sea of glass, of perfect harmony and beauty because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ for you. That is the vision that we have. No more sea. Everything's going to be new. All your tears wiped away. And that is the vision that John gives you and I here today for the seas and the chaos of our lives, the hurt and pain that we're experiencing, the hopelessness that we struggle with, the confusion that we are engaged in, the frustration and anger that we experience on a daily basis, the hurt that we have received from other people in this world. And he's honest about this, and he says, I'm giving you a hope to get you through. I'm making things new now. Just wait, and one day, the sea will be no more. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much because we know that you allow us to be honest and real about the difficulties and the challenges of this world. We thank you that you give a life giving hope, a future vision of our destiny, but that helps us in the present today. That we have this city in which you will dwell with us in perfection, and that we are your bride, and that we have a love and intimacy with our husband in Jesus, and that we have full blessings to know that the sea will be no more and every tear will be wiped away out of your tender love for us. And We thank you for all these gospel truths and realities and pray that we can live this out now and sustain us for all of us in this room who are struggling and hurting in ways both seen and unseen. Lord, you see this all, and we lift it up to you. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.